Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Now, before I start on the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, <clears throat> I want to talk to you just a second. My first wife and I spent a week in Mexico, and when I got back, I got sick. Not bad, just enough to be nasty. Had a urinary tract in, uh, infection. Um, I don't know who ever came up with that, but they ought to be shot. <laughs> that is... My temperature went to about 101, so I called a friend of mine that I'd married back some time ago, and you have to talk to a, he's a doctor, and you have to talk to a doctor that you have leverage over, so I could, because I could cancel his marriage certificate if he didn't, you know. And so he got me in the hospital emergency room up in Ashland <clears throat> at King's Daughter's. And um, while they were there, he had them to do a belly scan. And the belly scan showed that I had a wonderful, wonderful package of gallstones. Now, they weren't bothering me much, but they, they have to be vacuumed out of there one of these days. And they also told me I had a, 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 a stone in the bladder about the size of a golf ball that it's going to have to be busted up one of these days. And um, anyway, it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. You found out that you're dying and you don't know it. And, but anyhow, for those of you who are, say, 60 or maybe even younger and older, listen to me because a lot of the problems that I have, I created out of stupidity. And the stupid thing was, because I've been told time and time again, been listened to it, is a urinary tract infection would probably never have been there had I drunk enough water on a daily basis as I should have to start with. And uh, enough fluids. My mouth was dry and everything else was dry and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and I come to find out that uh, this is common among us older idiots. That you, you, need to, you need to pay attention to that. Drink enough fluids, it'll keep you out of the hospital. And um, I was too dumb to, to practice my own preaching, really, is what it boiled down to. But I want you older folks. Uh, now, the reason I look after the older folks and I care about you a lot is you got more money than the younger ones. And so, so we have to, have to look about that. Now, with that, and so I'll be going into the hospital one of these days to get that taken care of. They'll vacuum those stones out of there and, you know, get, get all that taken care of. Other than that, I'm, I'm a a prime example of, of physical perfection, you know, and, uh, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, well, go to hell for lying, same skin stealing, I guess. But anyway, for what that's worth. Now, I hope you're in the sixth chapter here of the, uh, of the book of Acts. Now, before I start, this, this is critical. Get this in your head because this, all of this preaching we're doing from the book of Acts will not make a really lot of sense as it should unless you remember it is a continuation of a previous book called the book of Luke. But the simplest way to deal with this is to remember in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, at the conclusion, the, the most straightforward passage, at the conclusion of the book of Matthew, Jesus calls together his apostles. In the text itself, it just uses the word disciple. But in the 28th chapter, starting at verse 16, he gathers with the 11 at that time. And he says, now look, here's what you guys are to do. He gives them a very clear, fairly concise commission. This is your responsibility. And he says, I'm giving this to you because my Father has given me the authority to do it. I want you to, in starting at verse 19, he says, Therefore, which always in Scripture means sit up and take a notice, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And if you do that, I'll stick with you. Now, that's what their assignment is. And when you get to the book of Acts, the book of Acts is really the biblical story of these folks doing what Jesus told them to do. It is taking that message into all the world, getting converts, baptizing them, and then teaching them to represent Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now, it's really that clear and simple. The result of them obeying that starts with Peter preaching the sermon on the day of Pentecost. And people from all over the Mediterranean world had gathered into uh, Jerusalem for that Pentecostal celebration, one of the great feasts of the Jewish people. And so <clears throat> thousands of people were baptized on different occasions. Now, I've seen 50 people baptized at a time, but, but to think of thousands in that city, it's kind of, it's attention-getting, to say the least. Now, the reason they were successful is because they were doing what Jesus told them to do. And so he continued, he said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. If you want me to stick with you, you do what I tell you. It's 10 cent store language. And so the book of Acts is that developing story of the apostles preaching the gospel. And the church then mushroomed. Now, whenever there's a growing organization of any kind, 
you, do, you run into problems you hadn't anticipated before. That's always true, whether it's in business or not. Whatever the organization is, and there has to be some organization for it to be effective. But the time came when uh, they ran into a problem with... Uh, Widows, believe it or not, can you imagine women being a problem in the church? Well, it did. It happened. And, uh, and so here's the deal. Some of the women, because in about 350 B.C., a, a guy was born who became the greatest warrior in the history of military warfare, in that time, and still is looked to today as something special. His name was Alejandro or Alexander. And for 30-some years, he, he, went, he conquered everything all the way down to Egypt. There's a town there named after him, Alexandria, there in Egypt. He went from there clear over, and you'd think we'd learn something from it, clear over north of, to Afghanistan, and then from Afghanistan he went down into India. He ran into elephants, and he said, this is not my thing. I don't want to fight guys riding on elephants. And so he came back then to Babylon where he retired and ultimately died, 33, 34 years old. But wherever he went and conquered people, he left a group of people who were educated and from Greece. He planted the Greek culture wherever he went. The result was, from about 330 B.C. until the time of Christ, the entire Mediterranean world then had the capacity to speak Greek. You see, God had a hand in that because he was wanting to get to the place and, 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 uh, and the Old Testament then was translated in the thing, thing called, you'll look at it, it's got an L, capital L, X, X, 70, that stands for the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, translated into Greek. So... Everybody then spoke, most of the people everywhere could at least understand Greek. Old Testament, God's people had it in the Greek language. But there was always a group of people, it invariably exists, who hang on to the past to the extent that if you don't agree with them, you've changed things and you're going to hell on a skateboard. That's just the way people are. And they continued to speak only Aramaic or Hebrew. So you got a bunch of widows over here who speak only Greek, and you got others over here who come that old bunch who, you know, they've got everything right, the good old days, all that kind of stuff. And so they, they spoke Aramaic or, 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 or Hebrew. And I'll explain how this happened in just a minute. But when it came to the distribution of the widow's needs, and the Old Testament is rampant with references that says your responsibility, if you're the people of God, is to take care of the poor and the needy. Don't go wearing God's name if you don't take care of the poor and the needy. 
And, uh, and so the Jews did that. They took that seriously. And they had a, a rather intricate and well-oiled system for caring for the poor. And the, and the most vulnerable at that day were widows. Now we'll talk about that more in just a minute. Because if a, a lady was widowed, she either had to be taken care of by her family or by the religious organization, or she would turn to prostitution. So obviously, we should be taking care of them to avoid that temptation. Now, I need to explain to you that uh, this problem now surfaces in the early church because those widows who spoke only Hebrew were, they bring all this stuff, and I'll explain that just in a second here. And there were those who had tables set up, and they got first pick. And then the people, and the ones who spoke Greek had to wait until they got to all the good stuff, and they got the leftovers. I don't know whether you like to eat leftovers or not. I can tell you stories about that. My mother was a school teacher. She would fix our lunch. And we didn't have a cafeteria. We carried it in a lunchbox. And you could always tell, and it was always leftovers. You never had anything. I mean, it was whatever was left over from breakfast. And you could tell what kind of humor mother was in by what was in your lunchbox. If you had sausage biscuits, she was a happy camper. If you had bacon on biscuits and it was off in there, you knew that she was mad at daddy or something, taking that out on us poor innocent children. Now, there's a little humor there if you could wake up and expect and understand it. Now, but this problem existed in the early church and it was a serious problem. So here's the way that it's recorded by Luke starting at verse 1, chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, 5,000 baptism, the Grecian-speaking Jewish widows, I'm adding some words here for clarity, among them complained against the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, meaning the apostles, these were the people that I referred to back in Matthew 28 where he said, this is your singular responsibility. Don't let anybody detract you from it. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. In other words, we cannot be detracted from what Jesus assigned us to do to do something else. We have to stay focused on what we're doing because if you've noticed, when we stay focused on what we're doing, the converts grow exponentially. So brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Now, the reason he says it like this is you can be a spiritual person and be as dumb as a brick. And so it is both spiritual and wise. 
we will turn this responsibility over them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. I need to stop here just for a second. You birds here probably have no idea what it takes to stand up here on a Saturday night and a Sunday morning, week after week, and to present to you as clear as humanly possible, illustrated and applied to our lives, the Word of God with a fairly strong conviction that it's accurate. Because so many of our preachers today go out and get on the internet to sermons.com, print them out a sermon, look at it, get into the pulpit and preach it. I'll tell you without fear of contradiction from anybody, that both for Matthew and I, there's seldom ever a sermon that comes across to you out of this platform that hasn't had probably anywhere from 24 to 32 hours of preparation. That added to the fact that through college education and study, we can read the language, that Greek language we're talking about. Matthew's been having great fun with it working on his Ph.D. So you study it in the original language, then you do research to see that it's historically accurate and put it in that package, and then you make the necessary time to apply it to our lives today, and you do that through prayer mostly. Now you, you consider that, and then you consider the fact that 17,000 or more, according to R.C. Sproul, leave the ministry every year because we are distracted from preaching the Bible to doing everything else on the sun because the preacher is supposed to be an expert in counseling. And, and to be honest with you, got a minor in psychology, about all that other stuff, a lot of experience. When the church first started, I actually got in trouble with my first wife over that. I was counseling, 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 counseling. She finally got me by the nap of the neck and seized the pants and said, Hey, look, buddy, I don't mind God being first in your life, but I'm to be number two. And what she was saying is I wasn't giving her the time and the attention that, was, uh, that she thought she required. I thought I was doing fine. I think I was wrong. And, uh, and so the result is, you know, you're supposed to know all of this stuff. And maybe you know just enough to be dangerous, but you can't say to some couple fighting, well, go see a shrink. And even though sometimes that's the right thing to do. There are churches, I have a friend who's retired now, he sent a thing up here for our 50th anniversary, bragged on me to the extent that I looked to see if he's really talking about me, Bob Russell. He started in a little church in Louisville, 120 people on a Sunday morning. It was a, a church plant by South Louisville Church. <clears throat> 
When he retired, they were averaging 25,000. They have seven different campuses working on more. They have a $120 million campus paid for. I just want to be on their missionary dole, but they haven't done that. But Bob and I are good friends, have been for some time. And we have met with a few other preachers discussing what can we possibly do to get more pulpit preachers because those seven, they, have, they not only have the, the, at Blankenberger where the big church is, they've got these seven other, whatever they call them, congregations scattered all over Louisville, one in E-Town. And you know why they do that? They can't find preachers. Megan just got back from southern Illinois and the church where she was speaking there I think has 11 or 12 and they're working on more of those campuses scattered around and they get it all through a CD and on an overhead because they don't, can't find a preacher. We desperately need well-educated, totally committed men who will preach the Bible, will not be flexible, just teach it and not be distracted into doing things they were that God never intended for them to do. It's a crisis for the church. There was a time when I was a kid when everybody in the community looked up to two people, the doctor and the preacher. That doesn't exist anymore. Now then, let's get back to the text. We've got all these widows in need, and here's a little history for you. You probably... You don't need to write it down, but you do need to know it. Because the Old Testament had emphasized so strongly the need for caring for for, uh, the needy. This system was developed over a period of time in the synagogue system of the Bible. Now, what is the synagogue system? The synagogue system was where all over the country they had to have a school. The synagogue is the same, accomplished the same purpose as the local school system did in early America. The first school I went to had been both a church building and then a, and a school at the same time. wasn't unusual. And the first and second grade were both in there in the, in the metropolitan area, Sunrise, Kentucky. And just as there was a school and a church together on the frontier that served the community, there was a synagogue that did the same thing. Now, any community could have a synagogue if there were <clears throat> ten families in that community. And these are all Jewish people. Why ten? Ten families 
that tithes provides sufficient income for a teacher to live at the same level they did. And therefore, you could then start a synagogue by Jewish law. And within this synagogue system, they developed a method of caring for the poor. Here's kind of the way that it went. Within each synagogue, they appointed guys comparable to these seven that we read about, that we'll name here in a minute. And they were called the receivers of alms. Now, you know what alms are. There were lots of instances where Jesus would be walking along and somebody would be calling it alms for the poor, alms for the poor. I used to tell people, alms for the poor too, help me. But nobody seemed to respond properly. Now, these receivers of alms every Friday went through the community. They knocked on all the market doors and asked for contributions. Then they went to the private homes of the well-to-do and asked for contributions. Every Friday, they collected both money and goods. Then later, Friday, they set up a system for distributing those goods to the needy. Now, the New Testament in various places talks about this system. For instance, in James 1.27, he, he defines true religion. Everybody's always wanting to know what it is. He says it this way. is visiting or caring for the widows and orphans in their affliction. And then the other part we'll talk about later. And keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Now, so they, they took up stuff like that to be given to people, these receivers of the alms. Now, here's how they distributed it. There, they had them categories. There were those with a temporary need, and they would go meet that temporary. Let's say, okay, it is Friday, and I owe my rent, and I don't have the money. They would meet that and pay that rent as a temporary need because the guy ordinarily paid his rent on time, but for maybe sickness, who knows what, didn't have it because they, they got paid on a daily basis for their work, the day laborers. But when he got well, he could go back to work and it would be okay. That's called, that was category number one for those with a temporary need, and they gave them enough to meet that immediate need. Then secondly, there are those with a permanent need. These were individuals who were unable to support themselves and weren't going to get to the place where they could. And they were individuals who didn't have a family capable of caring for them. Because that, we'll talk about that later from the, in 1 Timothy, 5th chapter. To these people, they gave them enough for 14 meals. Two meals a day for a week. That was those who had that permanent need and they cared for them in that manner. 
I don't know whether any of you have ever seen uh, the advertisement of the organization composed of Christians and Jews where they have these poor little old Jewish women that, you know, in Russia and other places where they, you give them enough money for a 30 days basket or something or other. And, and Alice Kay and I have done that a few times, and we went to the trouble to check to see if, if what we gave actually got to the people that were not individuals, but to the people that needed it. And, and they're legitimate. They really are. Anyway, this, this fund for the caring of those who were permanently disabled and incapable of caring for themselves, translated from, from Aramaic into English, was called the basket. The, the Hebrew spelling is K-U-P-P-A-H. I can't pronounce it. Kupah or something like that. Hupah or some paw. Now, these same collectors, these same guys who were responsible, the receiver of alms, also, when they had time, would go house to house for everybody. If you had uh, out, somebody had died and you had clothing left over, if you had whatever, they collected that and made it available. We just got a call here at church and said, you know, we've got X number of coats. Can you find a way to see that they're distributed? We'll, we'll do that. Even though I don't know how that's going to be right now, but we've got some clues from Sandy down here. Uh, so... This, there were, there are individuals who had, for unexpected reasons, had a depressing need that day. And the, the, the things received from going house to house were used to meet those who suddenly had a pressing need. And, and the distribution of those that they picked up from house to house was, for whatever reason, was called the tray. T-R-A-Y. Now, the fancy Hebrew word is T-A-M-H-U-I. You call it whatever you want to. Now, what the early church did, being all Jewish, is they adopted the system that the synagogue had used and brought it into the church. And that's what James is referring to in James 1.27 when he says visiting the widow or assisting the widows and the orphans in their affliction. It's true and underfile religion. And then it, it is mentioned also in the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians. And or I said Galatians, that's because my first wife studying that. I meant Timothy. Fifth chapter of Timothy. When you get old, your mind does some really screwball things. You say things you don't mean, and you don't say the things you do mean. You have to have an interpreter almost at times. Now, in addressing that problem that the church had, that they adopted from the synagogue system, they put guidelines to how it was to be implemented. And here in the fifth chapter of 1 Timothy, it says, Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Evidently, there were some women who were conning them. That's nothing new. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first 
of all to put their religion into practice and caring for their own family. And so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. So the family responsibility is to kick in first before the church is to go and do what is needed. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lived for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So give these people instructions. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on a list of widows. So they had a, a role of widows. Unless she's over 60, she's been faithful to her husband, is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the, pre, uh, the saints. Now that's funny. And you guys just let that slide. <laughs> washing the feet of the preacher. <laughs> I thought it was cute. I don't know what your problem is. Helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for the younger widows, don't put them on the, such a list. For when they, their sexual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they'll want to marry Dick Tracy. <laughs> That's not a big surprise. But these are the guidelines that were given to the church for the operation of the caring for the needy, the widows, and the orphans. Now, <laughs> excuse me. So the apostle said, we can't get involved in this. It's all-consuming, and it distracts us from our responsibility that Jesus has given us of preaching the gospel, baptizing, making disciples. We cannot be drug away from that. And we won't be. So select these seven guys and give them the job. And then support them. So here's the way it says it. The proposal to select these seven pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Both of these are named first because they're going to be mentioned again as evangelists here in the book of Acts. There was Prochorus, Nicor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Alexander, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed, laid hands on them. And so when they did it this way, and they refused to be distracted from preaching the gospel, it says in verse 7, So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of even priests became obedient to the faith. This brought up a, a, something that happened to Alice Kay and me a few years ago that I found to be very interesting. We were at a camp in New York, upstate New York, and one of the speakers there was one of my people that I truly respect. He just died this past year. His name is Ravi Zacharias. And Ravi would come over and, at lunchtime and sit down with Alice Kay and me and talk about Southern Ohio and Roy Rogers. He was born in India and didn't know much about you know, cowboys and Indians and all that kind of stuff. And so he, he liked to talk about that even though he lived in Atlanta. 
And he told me he had been in Egypt for like six weeks visiting underground churches there and some not so underground. And he said, here's a strange thing that's happening that nobody's talking about. Now, this has been three or four years ago. He said, a number of Muslims are coming to Christ and being baptized. And he said, in one meeting, two imams, say Muslim local preachers, ran into each other and said, what are you doing here? I'm a new believer in Christ. Yeah, I am too. But don't tell anybody. <laughs> you never think that this happens. But he, was, he said, it's exciting to see when the gospel is given by people who have a loving heart and a kind spirit and a presentation that is clear and compelling, the number of people who continue to come to Christ. Well, the New Testament actually goes to great lengths, and especially in the fifth chapter of the book, fifth and sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. In the fifth chapter, uh, the fourth chapter rather, he starts talking about the ministry of the local church. And he says it this way. He said, The Lord ascended into heaven and he gave gifts unto men. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, because later Stephen and Philip ceased to take care of tables and started to be evangelists. And some to be pastor teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until they reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, aiming the whole measure, aiming to get to the place where, you, if we translate this, get to the place where our life reflects the character qualities of Jesus. That's what Christian maturity is. When we get to the place where our life reflects. And the Apostle Paul said, my goal in life is for me to live reflects Christ. That should be the goal of every believer. Now, here's the deal. These leaders of the local church, apostles are gone... <coughs> The pastor teachers of the local church, we're not to do it all because that limits the effectiveness. Our job is to preach and to teach the Bible with clarity, honesty, and we cannot be very flexible if we're going to be accurate and consistent. To be kind with those who may differ is important. Because we'd want somebody to be kind to us if we were sitting there. But here's the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to preach and teach to the place where each... And, and, and prepare you in growing maturity to the place where your number one priority <coughs> is to represent Christ wherever you go. Whether it's on the job 
whether it's in the home, whether it's a next-door neighbor mowing their grass or doing something, whatever it is, your primary reason for existing as a person is to represent Christ. If you are a doctor, you're not a doctor who is a Christian. You're a Christian who practices medicine. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> if you're a school teacher, you're not a school teacher who happens to go to church. You are a Christian who happens to teach school. And we do that with everything that we get. And if and when we get to that place, the cause of Christ and the growth of the church will become unbelievable. But Satan is a genius at getting people distracted from their assigned responsibilities. And the apostles were sharp enough not to let that happen. The ministry of today has not been that effective. Now, there's other reasons for that we'll talk about in a second. We're to equip the saints. And we're to, the reason we do that is get you to the place where you get the Word of God out of a church building and into the streets and into the offices and into the homes where a community is saturated with the Word of God that comes as a result of us equipping you to get the job done. Otherwise, it's centered in one person and therefore is very ineffective in penetrating the whole community. There's enough people here today that this whole community could hear about Jesus in this coming week if we did it. But we get sidetracked in so many other things that only have temporary importance. Now I told you, and this is what, where we'll end up, and you put on your hard hat and flak jacket for this. When James wrote in 127... The true and undefiled religion, he said, it's two things. It's carrying out this caring, it, it is the carrying out the program for taking care of the poor, the widows and the orphans in particular. And then he continues, in, and keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Man, have we flunked that course. Now, Matthew's right when he says, let's keep the door open to anybody and everybody. He's right about that. We want everybody to be able to hear the gospel unimpeded. However, we have compromised miserably on what's required of a Christian once they're saved. We have allowed individuals who claim to be Christians to live together without the benefit of marriage, without saying a word. Without confronting, we'd rather have the seats full than we would have godly people. God help us. We have allowed sin to be accepted in the church without confrontation. Now, I'm not talking about being mean and unkind. 
But I am saying that we have the responsibility of saying to these young folks, or sometimes older ones, because in Florida this rampant, I might lose my Social Security. Yeah, you might lose your soul too. The early church was smashingly effective because they were as concerned about the latter part of James 1.27 as it was the first part. I can prove it. In the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians, to a, to a church located in a horrible place, the city of Ephesus, Here's what it said about those people who were converted to Christ. Now listen with at least one ear. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. I'm reading from the Bible, folks. Nor should you, there be obscenities, dirty jokes, Foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place. But rather, thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. Hang on now. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and kingdom of Christ and of God. And so don't let anybody deceive you with empty words saying all you got to do is go to church and put a little money in the bucket. What he's saying is once you become a Christian you have the same type of assignment that the apostles had only your assignment is Live so Christ can be seen in you. And nothing less is acceptable. And if you don't, hang on now. Because if you don't, God's wrath comes upon those who are disobedient. Therefore, don't even associate with them. You are to be the light of the world, he goes on to say. So live as children of light. Now, you can't go back and redo or undo the past. We can agree on that. But you can sure thunder start exactly where you are. And make the vow today, Lord, I will not be distracted by the devil by any of his buddies or anything else, from my primary assignment, I'm going to be just like the apostles, my primary assignment is to live a life that reflects the character qualities of Jesus himself. Now, you may think this is a hard saying. But it isn't if you will be filled with the Spirit of God. 
seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and praying on a daily basis to be filled to overflowing with the presence of God to strengthen you to carry out what would otherwise be an impossible assignment. Now, I'm going to quit there and tell you that I'm going to preach again next week. So I figured I'd chase you all off today. I had to get it in today. But really, I'm just trying to set you up for what comes next week, which is a lengthy sermon and the death of Stephen, one of these seven guys that was selected to represent, to oversee those tables. Now, these aren't the same as deacons in the, later on in the church. These are just seven guys who were assigned to carry out a responsibility and get it done, even though... I know commentators who differ with me, but they'll learn better when they get to heaven. So, <clears throat> I, I know, I know this is what would some would consider to be narrow in thinking, but it really isn't. It's biblical and it's true, and it's presented to you. Because of one thing in particular. The Old Testament also teaches this. That when we allow our lives to be governed by our sensual, natural, inherited desires that all of us have from time to time. And we allow those to govern our lives and we get involved in sexual activities and immoral things here, there, and everywhere. Here's what happens. Listen carefully. The Old Testament says if and when you do that, you not only are destroying your reputation, but you're ruining the future of your children and your grandchildren and their children. To the third and fourth generations, it says, for those who sin against God. And all of us have if you've lived for a while, have already paid some of that price with our children and our grandchildren by being primarily concerned about how comfortable we live rather than how godly we live. I'm not opposed to comfort. But I'm telling you, most of the stuff that we get distracted on five minutes after we die, we'll know it didn't amount to a row of peas. You ruin your children's lives by giving in to the lust of the flesh. You guarantee them some hope when you're filled with the Spirit. I'm for giving them hope. I hope you'll join me. Lord, dismiss us with a sense of your divine presence. Help us, O oh God, to take seriously the assignment that you've given us. Help us not to be distracted, which is so easy to do, to encourage each other, and at times even to correct our, each other, to make sure that we walk in paths of righteousness so that we can represent you well as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're free to go. 
Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.